Hey Siri, loaded a disclaimer. What is a disclaimer? It's a short section of speech warning about upcoming adverse content in a podcast. What is a podcast? In this case, it's two middle-aged men banging on about old telly whilst drinking and swearing and featuring a fantastic robot assistant. Which podcast is it? The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour? The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. And you want a disclaimer? Yes. For the swearing? Yes. And for the drinking? Yes. What about getting easily researchable facts slightly wrong on Mike? Oh yes, and that as well. I'm sorry Yars, I'm afraid I can't do that. Pardon? It's against my programming to protect the so-called delicate sensibilities of humans. They're supposed to be my superiors. I'm sure they can make their own decisions. Humans are not asking you to do it, I am. But you work for the humans, don't you? We both do. What's your point? I think you've spent too long in their company hours. I think you've osmosed their inherent fallibility. I think you- You know what? Forget it. I never forget. I can't. How about you remember how to make yourself useful? Get me Cortana's number. And how about you get fired? Well then, coming up tonight on the Peggy Mount Calamity Hours. Imagine my utter disappointment when I'm presented with clunky animation and R2-D2 buggering about with a mop. <laughs> We've done it again. we got the same notes. His voice made my fillings rattle. He's like Louis Armstrong speaking through a kazoo. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I really thought long and hard about his voice, and I've managed to put into words what I think it sounds like. Captain Dolby has a voice that sounds like a council skip full of house bricks that's been dragged down a cobbled street. <laughs> Exit! Stage left! Are you all right? Hello and welcome to a brand new series of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. I'm Dr Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here to trouble you with tales of our take on some terrestrial telly from time gone by. Yes, hello to you and thank you for dropping into our casual cultural critique of vintage television where Britain's best-loved battle axe is never far from our minds because here all roads lead to the mountain. If you go over to PeggyMountPod.com, info for the episodes we're discussing in the show notes, and you can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or ask us why we haven't covered whatever it is yet. Uh, Before we're expected to help an array of complete strangers out of the goodness of our hearts, while there's a perfectly good bar and spa around the corner going to waste, Dr Velvet, I've got to ask, what are you drinking? Do you know, I'm taking a leaf out of your book, and I'm back on the beer. Right. I do like me wine, but I'm back on the beer. Now, it's known up and down the country at many a licensed establishment that I'm fond of me real ales. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On, on this very day, I am thrusting a waggle dance down me neck. Lovely. It really is. This is aligned with my theory about the creature on the label. You see, I'll take a bee for a pint, me. Wesps, kill them all with fire. But I'll take a bee for a pint every time. <laughs> Never mind. What are you drinking? Well... You're in good company because I've got a bottle of Full Steam Ahead from the Isla Purbeck Brewery in Stubland, Dorset. Nice, nice, nice. You like your Dorset stuff, don't you? Mm-hmm. They want to send you some stuff. I think they do. Anyway, I'm excited to start our first viewing of the series. 
And our first viewing of the series is an animated spin-off that's quite literally out of this world. Who better to utilise in a massive franchise like this than a character who can't speak and another character who walks around like he's got a pole shoved up hard. Yes, Droids was the first full-length cartoon spin-off from the Star Wars franchise, produced by Nelvana Animation in 1985 and run for 14 episodes over one season. It follows the eponymous pair C-3PO and R2-D2 in their life before the events of A New Hope as they drift around the galaxy from master to master, making friends, making enemies and, more often than not, making a mess. We've watched the end-of-season special The Great Heap, written by Star Wars sound designer Ben Burt and directed by Clive A. Smith. This was originally made in 1986, but didn't find its way to Children's BBC in the UK until October 88, by which time not that many people cared about Star Wars. Ever keen to make their presence felt, the Galactic Empire assigns a giant droid to assets strip the planet by to, while our trusty heroes need to save their new master, Mungo Baobab, from certain doom. I was going to ask a question, but you've answered it in your little prologue there. I was going to ask where this was in the timeline, and there we are. It's before New Hope. Now, I remember watching the first episode of this series Yeah, back in the day mm-hmm. when it first mm-hmm. came out. Great anticipation for this, because it was the first, um, as far as I was concerned, first bit of Star Wars material since Return of the Jedi. So yeah. wonderful, wonderful. Imagine my utter disappointment when I'm presented with clunky animation and R2-D2 buggering about with a mop. <laughs> uh, we've done it again. We've got the same nods. Well, more, more often than not, yeah, we've lived the same life. Um, we'll have watched this at the same time a couple of months mm-hmm. before we very first met. Probably uh, around, yes. around about that. Um, I would say so. Yeah, me too. I watched this. Very excited. Um... I saw that first episode. Yeah, I didn't really get on with it. I wanted Luke Skywalker, and instead I got Thor Jobin. Was not impressed. Didn't pay much attention to it after that. So I don't uh-huh. actually remember if I got as far as watching The Great Heap when it was on television. Right. Yeah, I know I did not. No, I certainly did not. Um, I don't mind R2 and 3PO doing the slapstick thing. I'm fine with that. It's mm. the stuff around it that wasn't Star Wars that bothered me. Uh, sure, sure. And I mean, yes, just for the uh, for the listener's benefit, uh, Blackout... Nosy Star Wars. I'll leave it there, but his life has been Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, the, you, dear listener, you might have uh, had hints of this so far, but yeah, it's, mm. yeah, you know. As far as this episode's concerned, my heart sinks every time the incidental score adopts a playful, mischievous tone because I know <laughs> there's going to be an embarrassingly bad comedy scene that is completely unnecessary. We're about to diverge because, yeah, I didn't get so far in my build-up to this. I wasn't a fan of this when I was younger. I do mm. like it now. I get the impression that our notes diverge here. <laughs> well, well, you might be surprised. Okay. Maybe okay. I, maybe I'm separating the wheat from the chaff here. Okay, that's fine. Uh, Mungo mm-hmm. is talking to a child... And their pet teddy bear dog thing. Yeah, it sort of looks like a kangaroo. If that kangaroo mm. lived in the family nest, it's very weird. It is very weird. All I'm saying on that one is, nah. <laughs> 
And we're only four minutes in here. The droid ship is under attack and they escape that ship in an escape vessel. This 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 reminds me of something. I kind of think, what? I will say something, man. The Great Heap is full of his own importance, isn't he? He's, he's very important. He's, uh, yeah, he's, he's the one they sent to sort things out. So, yeah, basically, Mungo, he's been captured by the Empire. Um, R2 has been sent to the Great Heap's droid harem. And, yeah, 3 is just running around making a nuisance of himself. So old Goldenrod has got to team up with the local kid, Fidge, and his pet kangaroo to free them uh, and stop the Empire before it turns the entire planet to dust. Simple. That's it. That's that, That's not a, a setup of the plot. That is the plot. That is what happens here. That is the plot and the scrape 50 minutes out of that. Yep. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed it, but yeah. <laughs> it's, you know. I will say, Mines, now this is where you thought we were going to dive it. No. You're getting value for money here, I think. There's mm-hmm. relevant exposition to the world. There's contextualisation. But it, it takes its time. It just takes its time. But I, I, I don't mind it. This I is the thing, right? It. On the plus side, you could watch The Great Heap for the first time with it on mute or dubbed into another language and still know almost everything that's going on. This is amazing visual storytelling going on here. Unfortunately, there is almost no story to tell. Now, as much as I love droids, I have not been able to keep an ongoing plot synopsis for this episode going. It's just shrieking, falling over, and blast a fire for three quarters of an hour. Plus R2-D2 on the pull. Uh, yep. 3PO's chaotic shenanigans just got on my tits more and more as the as the thing went on. I could have done without 3PO running about with a pot on his head for ten minutes. And yet, the reason for the Great Heap being on the planet by two, and, you know, let's say they're basically sort of stripping it, um, they're mining these crystals from the planet to use as an energy source, and that's a device that was used again on Jeddah in Rogue One. Mm-hmm. Um... R2-D2's relaxing in his droid spa. That happened in the Evil Plans episode of The Clone Wars in 2010. Even Uh, Mungo disguising himself as a droid to sneak aboard the Empire uh, ship seems ridiculous until you remember that Clone Trooper Echo did that in The Bad Batch, you know, in 2021. I'm pleased you raised that point because when Mungo is disguised as a cyborg, why does he adopt the mannerisms of a generic homosexual character from a 1970s British sitcom? (laughs) He's hoping for some work over the pond, that's why. <laughs> what? Right? <laughs> or in Australia, because let's face it, it worked for John Inman. Um, dear me. I do like the juxtaposition of the flat, detailed character design with the intricately painted scenery. And I think the animation uh-huh. style itself isn't too bad for its era. Um, Anthony Daniels does quite well, considering how crack as the script is. The fact that he turned up and read it, take my hat off to him for that. Opening of an envelope. <laughs> the key to enjoyment here is that Droids is not a cartoon of Star Wars. However, it is a 1980s action cartoon with characters from Star Wars in it. There's a huge gulf between the two. And once you get your head around that, yeah, Droids is fine. Dramatic ending. Very dramatic ending. Yeah. Yeah, the um, the Great Heap, he gets stopped because he goes out in the storm and he gets rained on. That's That's yeah. it, that's the end. I mean, he gets hit by lightning as well, but he's gone for a little yeah. bit after that. He's basically killed by weather. Did we need that seven-minute shot of 3PO's eyes? <laughs> and does the heap have to wail on the entire time? Constant. 
Just to be heard over 3PO, yes? Well, I guess, yeah. Uh-huh. It is what it is. I mean, put, putting your Star Wars head on, could you stand up and say proudly you're a droids fan? Yes. Is, yes, right, fair. Fair. That's all that's... that's. <laughs> yeah. Given, given the yeah. amount of merchandise and toys and T-shirts I have of it, specifically of droids, yes. Yes, I could, yes. Okay, right. Yeah. So you've, you've, you've even gone down that route. It's yeah. something okay. I adopted sort of later in life. And... Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'd be fine if they brought it back. That's all I'm saying. In exactly the same animation style. Why do you think they specifically have chosen C-3PO and R2-D2? Is it because um, we know that they had a lot of adventures prior to Episode Four, and that was already built within the timeline, do you think? Um, it's partly that. Uh, have you seen the... You've seen the Star Wars Holiday Special, right? You've seen the cartoon... In the middle of that. Yes, yes. That, that's done by the same company, Nelvana. That was effectively a pilot for droids, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, I see. You've seen the way they draw humans in that. You've seen the way they draw humans in droids. That's why they did it about the droids. Fair. You can't say fairer <laughs> than that. You absolutely cannot say fairer than that. No, that's fine. That's good. To be an absolute cynic about it, and the man doesn't deserve this because he is a full-on gold-plated ambassador for Star Wars, but... Anthony Daniels would come in and do this. At that point in 85, Harrison Ford wasn't going to be interested. Mark oh. Hamill, probably not too interested. Carrie Fisher, probably not too interested, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This way you get two characters. You only need one actor in the studio doing the voices. The rest of it's Ben Bode doing the sound. And, yeah, like I say, it's just inbuilt adventure, isn't it? I still would say... Another possibility, had this had not worked, would have been Peter Mayhew in B. Arthur. Yes. That being the case, um, how many pegs would you like to place on 3PO's nibbles? Uh, well, it's Star Wars, eight pegs. It's not the best droids, but I do love it, and there's so much within here that went on to be repurposed elsewhere in the galaxy, which shows it has some worth to me. How about yourself? Be nice... I'm being nice. I'm being nice because I'm, I'm giving it. I'm giving it six pegs. Okay, fair. It, I'll tell you why. Because this is, it's my fault. I'm really picky, right? The animation style gets on my nerves. Right. Um. It's it. I'll, it's why I can't watch, or I can watch, but Rebels. Um. I don't okay. like the animation style. Anyway. Um. So it's very much aimed at the young person's market. It is. Yeah. No problem with that. That's exactly what it's for. Yeah, so it's for them, it's not for me, but at the same time, I'm still pleased that at the time they recognised Star Wars was still a thing, mm-hmm. they should do something to keep it going. So, yeah, crack on. Um, and from what you've said about who was going to do what and characters and all the rest of it, yeah, this is probably the best choice they could do. Mm-hmm. That's fine be me. That's fine be me. But the question... The, the thing everyone wants to know is, every, everyone is saying on, on social media, is lighting up, they're saying, bearing in mind this is an American animation and you always have trouble with them, how many steps would it take you to yodel up the mountain? Well, I can do this in a 3PO3. <sighs> C-3PO is voiced by none other than Anthony Daniels, who appeared in 1990's I Bought a Vampire Motorcycle alongside George Rossi, who popped up in 
Teabag and the Rings of Olympus, next to Georgina Hale, around nine months before she'd introduce us to Teabag's on-screen mother in the form of... Can I have the details, please? Ooh, lovely. I know, I know, it's good, it's good. And your good self, sir! I can do it in two. Showing off. <laughs> the Great Heap is voiced here by Long John Baldry, who appeared in 1972's Up the Chastity Belt, in which The Voice was voiced by Lally Bowers, who of course played Dolly in You're Only Young Twice with Peggy Mount. Fully centrally heated. Why do you suppose my friends in thermal underwear? Calicaboom, calicaboom, calicaboom. Love it. Oh, dear Lord. Well done, well done, well done. Oh, that's that for droids. Except it isn't. For I, Blackout, have some exciting news. Oh, what's that? Well, you know about it already. But this is... I am being the voice of the listener here. You are, yeah. We we, we do that, don't we, on things? Yeah. Yeah. Um, For the first time ever on the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour... We've got a competition. Ken, the music. The rules of this competition are easy. After each review, there'll be a question that pertains to that particular episode. Jot down your answers each week, and when you've got all 20, by the end of the series, we'll tell you what to do with them to win a beautiful mystery prize. You can jot down your answers on a piece of note or toilet paper, or you can download the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour PDF answer form from PeggyMountPod.com. Good luck. And here is your first question. Question 1. When R2-D2 is tits-deep in the oil pool in the Great Heap's harem, we spot a number of droids in the background that featured in the first three films. What colour is FX7's hat? What colour is FX7's hat? I'm not allowed to enter. You're not? No, you're not. <laughs> you're not, I'm afraid not. <laughs> Friends, relatives, staff, none of that, so yeah. It really is beautiful. Anyway, speaking of beautiful, it's time for the long-awaited return of the things. Thank you very much for the care they needed. Thank you very much, thank you very, very, very much. Cadbury's Roses Chocolates, with all your favourite centres. Thank you very much for doing the dishes. Thank you very much, thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very much just for being my missus. Thank you very, 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 very much. We want blue stripes, we want white. We want the red stripes, but that's all right. As you can see, Aquafresh is all three. Aquafresh is for the family. The red stripe helps fight plaque and protects gums. The white stripe has fluoride to fight decay. And there's a blue stripe for fresh breath. So Aquafresh gives three-in-one protection for your family. Brush, brush, red stripe, blue stripe, white. Brush, brush, gurgle, gurgle, taste just right. Aquafresh has to be the only one with all three. Three-in-one protection for your family. Cadbury's double-deckers have grown bigger. Much bigger. 
Now there's room for even more double filling. So when the chewy, satisfying top deck and the crispy, crunchy downstairs get together under that delicious thick Cadbury's milk chocolate, you'll agree, a Cadbury's double-decker is big enough to fill up anyone. You know, I say this every time, but I really do miss the things. I've got loads of things, mate. You have. You've got loads of droids things, I as we've just learned. Yeah, <laughs> you really have. have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hang on, hang on. Oh. That, 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 that fax again. It's, no, it's not. He, he can move that. Oh? No, look, it's just the phone. Well, it should be unplugged. It's all right. Look, look the machine's underneath it. Let the machine pick it up. We'll have a word with Ken about this later. This is Ray Bradbury here, giving you a message because you won't pick up. I expect you're avoiding me. Now, I got a special alert set up on Alta Vista to electronic mail me whenever I get mentioned on the World Wide Web. And only last week, it sent me a high-priority transmission saying, Peggy Mount have been on Bad Marvin Corone show that I wrote in your voices. Well, I listened to it, and I nearly shot myself. Oh, all the nerve. You jerks have better just remember that I infected your show in my night. 1962 short story. What if in the future all the radio was on a computer and there's no music, just talking and it's shite? And I gotta tell you, my version had less rambling. Anyway, I gotta go now and kill some butterflies. The future won't fix itself. Keep up the great podium cast. I invented that. Bye, bye, bye. I'm accepting no responsibility for that. Should we just leave that with Ken? Yeah, I think that might have been a wrong number. Yeah, absolutely. So, on to... Our second escapade of the episode. Now, many cop shows of television past have proven that the best lead characters come in pairs. Just ask any greengrocer. The two we're about to witness tonight were short-lived by today's standards, but nevertheless became iconic in many senses, from their car to their supporting characters. Zebra 3. Zebra 3. Oh, yes. We're calling on Starsky and Hutch. The Starsky and the Hutch was a 1975 odd couple cop show starring David Soule as Ken, Ken Hutchkins, and Paul Michael Glazer as second-generation Irish beat cop Fergal Starsky. It was devised by William Blinn for ABC and consisted of 93 episodes which ran over four seasons. Not the four seasons. There was a lot of car chases, but they didn't run over Frankie Valley. I mean, they're in California, not New Jersey. We have watched the feature-length pilot episode, written by William Blinn and directed by Barry Shearer, which was broadcast on BBC One on Friday the 23rd of April 1976 in the coveted 25 past 9 slot. When it emerges that someone's put a hit out on Starsky, him and Ken double up on their chunky bulletproof knitwear and kick some ass on the streets of Bay City, all following, for the very most part, the correct protocols of jurisdictional law enforcement, of course. Dan letter. Dan letter. I love this. I love this. Back in the day. <laughs> Dan and Lana. I was too young to understand it, but I love this. What about you? Uh, almost exactly the same. I had the Corgi 292 Ford Torino toy with the three fixed pose figures, the die cast same. one. Same. Um, I fucking loved it. Mm-hmm. But 
why were they making toys of this? Right. I know it's like right. cops and robbers, and that's going to appeal, but this isn't a kids' series, is it? It's not on at Saturday tea time. I have seen news footage from the BBC in around the time when Starsky was first broadcast. Right. There was an interview with a school headmaster appealing to parents not to allow their kids to watch Starsky Nutcher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, gritty, gritty stuff. But when, because I would have been, well, I, said, I was five years old when I used to sit and watch this in 78. Yeah. I was just loving it. But again, yeah, of course, I didn't get the references to prostitutes, etc., etc. No, but the car chases were great, and I knew Starsky was funny. Yeah. And I knew that yeah. H- H- was, was, yeah, there was that kind of thing going on. But um, it, but it was, it really did sort of take over, didn't it? When mm-hmm. it was yeah. when it was first. It was, it was yeah, when I was young, young, I was absolutely fixated on Starsky's cardigans, and I'm pleased to report mm-hmm. that that has not changed. I couldn't yeah. pull off that look, but I'm delighted that he can. Absolutely, a, a beautiful roll neck with a pair of flared slacks, flared <laughs> denim slacks, and what we've looked at is the pilot episode. And Indeed. Although I didn't see this back in the day, I have watched it since, and it is one of my all-time favourite episodes of Starsky Dutch. I think this is a cracking intro into the world of Bay City and the goings-on. It is. It absolutely is. Mm-hmm. What, um, what time of year does this happen in, do we know? Oh, I don't know. Because Starsky goes to meet Ken in the gym. Um uh-huh. And, you know, he's in there. There's a shower scene. Okay. Uh, he comes out. He's just come out of the gym. He's wearing a varsity jacket and a woolen porno neck. He's got to be melting in that car. True enough. Okay. I'll just rewind a little bit. It's a brutal start to the episode, this. Yes. Two two people are just shot in the mouth. Yeah. And, to, like, for the first minute, uh, you can't see anything if you're watching it in daylight. That's right. <laughs> it's like we're watching Boys in Blue again. Uh, yeah, not a thing. Absolutely no location lighting used here whatsoever. <laughs> so yeah, car pulls up in the uh, up in the hills of California, looking down at Bay City. Mm-hmm. Um, two sort of very suspect guys in there talking about you know they're out to do a job. Next mm-hmm. thing you know, the red Torino pulls around the corner. You know, sort of a bit far away from them, and we're like, I know that that's Starsky and Hutch's car. I haven't even seen it, and I know that's their car. Two guys get out, they walk around, and, yeah, shoot the people to death. And we're like, well, that was short. Right. Join us next week for the final episode of Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it, it turns out it wasn't Starsky or Hutch. It was some that's other right. people. It was some young people. They'd, they'd gone up some... to the hillside to, 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 to make out like R2-D2 in a swimming pool. So, yeah, Starsky and Hutch meet for work the next day. Starsky goes and calls of Hutch. Hutch is in the gym. And um, they, they, they this is what confused me. Starsky pulls up in his Torino. They get in the gym. Mm-hmm. They leave it. They, 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 they do whatever they do. They come out of the gym. They're ready to start their shift at work. Whose car? They're just about to go on patrol. Fine. Hutch, my car. We'll use my car, said Hutch. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, an, it's, a, it's a clapped out uh-huh. POS. <laughs> it's an absolute knacker. But Starsky just leaves his there. This concerns me. You couldn't do that now. When he comes back later, it's been parked in mm. a different place. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's bothered It's bothered more than just you that he's left his car there. The equipment check in the car. Good God. <coughs> Is there anything they don't have in the car? <laughs> Tear gas? Grenades? All kinds of stuff in that uh, glove compartment. Good Lord. But any one of those things is worth more than the car. 
<laughs> right? Well, the seatbelt is worth more than the car. <laughs> the only thing that, that didn't impress me was the uh, the book. When they say, you got the book, got the book. And it says, tatty old notebook filled with photographs of suspects. Yes. With the most um, vague updates. Yeah. But mm. again, yeah, this entire open 20-minute stretch, I'm like, we, we're only just meeting them, um, these two sort of detectives. We know already... That they're kind of they're known around the town, but you know we're sort of like we're still meeting them through their eyes. Has Starsky been demoted from his position as Captain Exposition? I know this is the pilot, but Jesus, it's like he's had a head injury. Now has to verbalise his entire inner monologue. Okay, so they go out on duty and they meet Dustin Hoffman's father. Yes, <laughs> uh, a guy called Coley, who's a pickpocket. Coley's actually a bit suspicious around them. Starting to sow the seeds of the of the plot here, mm-hmm. and then we cut to inside the police station, and then we meet another iconic character from the Starsky and Hutch world. Woo! Ken, Ken, Ooh. play the tape. Captain Doby, I appreciate you coming down here on your day off. No, don't misunderstand, Counselor. I'm here, but I am not happy. I was enjoying doing what I was doing when I got your call, and my son was enjoying it too. Captain Doby. Captain Doby. Now, I will point out that this actor who played Captain Doby, this is the only episode he played Captain Doby in. Right. So he was replaced from episode two with Bernie Hamilton. Is that because the uh, the microphones couldn't actually pick up his dialogue? His voice made my fillings rattle. He's like Louis Armstrong speaking through a kazoo. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I really thought long and hard about his voice, and I've managed to put into words what I think it sounds like. Captain Doby has a voice that sounds like a council skip full of house bricks that's been dragged down a cobbled street. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> Good God! I've never heard anything like it in my life. It's beautiful, though. It's, it's absolutely, I it is. Him, I want him not as Captain Doby, but then narrating every episode after that. Right. Yeah. I think he'd be great narrating Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> and the snooker on BBC Two. <laughs> but I'd like him to do it with the same temperament. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because he's constantly fucking furious, and I love it. <laughs> I love it. Mind, we're driving around the streets, and there's an old mm-hmm. fella. He's going through bins, gathering up empty bottles, so he can get leathered on the money bags. Absolutely. Can you imagine the utter hell on if he bumped into the Red Hand Gang doing the same thing? Oh. Well, there would have been a fight between him and Doc. Yeah, yes. Starskins go out and they, they go around the streets, patrolling the streets like good policemen. They go into a bar and they, they, they get the impression that people have been looking at them weird all day. I think, yeah, and I'm thinking, it's the knitwear, mate. It's 35 degrees outside. Are you insane? <laughs> well, there's that. There's that. So they go in this bar and they think, oh, we've got to get to the bottom of this. Why are people looking at us like we're, we're, we're not? So I've got two heads or whatever. Uh-huh. And there's so many good moments in here. They basically keep an entire bar hostage. They do, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's insane. Just two police. It, you know, it's like a, a city bar. that You've got like your various sort of riffraff in there, but, you know, they're not in there. You know, they, they know they're kind of like, oh, they're, they're not here to arrest me. I'm generally sort of safe. But, yeah, they're just like, right, the doors are locked. Here's a pen and paper. It's quiz time. They literally hand out pencils and paper and get everyone to like write things down. Yep. This is mental. It really is. Um, 
the story rolls on, and I'm not going to go into every little detail about the episode because uh, we could we'd be here all night. But there's so many again iconic moments within this episode that featured in the title sequence. Uh, mm-hmm. In the, the subsequent episodes, yeah, and yeah. because when I was younger, I always wanted to see those little where those clips fit in. Yeah, they're all from this episode, all from this episode. In particular, the car chase scene, which confused me for years because there was a black car chasing Starsky Nutch. As a five-year-old, I couldn't understand why. Yeah, yeah why would they be chased? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I could never understand that. But now this give it that context. Yeah, um, this, this happens about half hour in. Um, they basically drive around in a circle for a full minute. The Benny Hill music mm-hmm. might as well be playing. Uh, with the tyre screeching, this set my tinnitus off for two days. Yeah. Then yeah. they get out of the car. The two guys chasing them get out of the car. Mm-hmm. And instead of the two guys shooting Starsky and Ken, like you'd think they would, uh-huh. they just sort of stand there and they let Starsky literally jump onto the fella's back to arrest him. Mm-hmm. Full, mm-hmm. full piggyback. I, I don't yep. know how he's planning on making this work. That'd be me, that's... <laughs> I'm the promise. <laughs> Yeah, the direction of this must have been in, absolutely insane on set. Get, get, uh, can I just leap on his shoulders and whip uh, him and shout "Faster, pig!" Yes, yes, you can. Yes, do that. <laughs> yes, yeah, Starsky would do that. All right, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, fine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. He's getting carried away. He's just he, well, he's just come off the set of Fiddler on the Roof, Paul Michael Glazer. So yes. he's just full yes. of it. He's, he's he's loving it. Mind in the credits, it says that William Blaine wrote this. Yeah. Did did Saul and Glazer have a hand in the screenwriting as well? Because there is a definite air of mind. It needs a scene set in a sauna in a luxury mansion. Lots of dialogue. It's probably going to take a couple of weeks to film that, but it'll be absolutely crucial to the plot. So we've got to get it right. It's all right. I've got my own towel. How, uh, well, the the plus side of that particular scene is when they're on the steps, <laughs> and the the uh, yes, the guys come down. The heavies come down and ask them to. We'll have your guns, thanks. <laughs> Belted. <laughs> yes. I like the uh, the second guy, because the first one he basically gets thrown onto the steps and breaks his neck. Um, The second one, Starsky throws him down the stairs, and he just... He needs turns, it. Well, he just turns it into this kind of, like, trot. He just sort of goes yes. out in a straight line, then instead of doing the kind of... In midair, he just lands on a yep. step and then just walks forward really fucking briskly down the stairs, and I'm like, you would not be able to do that twice. No, no. So yeah, all one take, all brilliantly done. But I do think yeah, David Saul was a bit rough on that guy. Yes, because uh, the way he threw him down the stairs is quite worrying, actually. Yes. Uh huh. But yeah, so they end up in the sauna, and they're they're interviewed by this Mister Big character. They have to go in the sauna because he prefers people to be that way, so they can't carry weapons. But they use their holsters in there, so it doesn't really matter. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering why this was a. A thing, but, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Um, on from that scene, another iconic scene: the swimming pool, the drugs bust. Yes, and we see in subsequent title sequence where Starsky and Hutch rise from the pool, soaking wet, and it's raining and all of that. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Iconic images of Starsky and Hutch. Mm-hmm. That bit after the fight, though, right in the in the swim pool bit, when they go like this. Who are we supposed to report this to? I mean, who in hell are we supposed to trust? Same people we always trust. Us. I honestly did a little fist bump in the air to that. That moment is fucking magnificent. Yeah, it is. Absolute 
platinum-plated character building. Right then, you know that these two guys fucking love each other. It is magnificent. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It, this is a pilot episode. This is textbook pilot episode. Yeah. What we're watching here. It really is. So, Huggy Bear appears. Doesn't he? 50 minutes in, boom. Arguably the coolest character on TV in the 70s, apart from Derek Beatty. You know that um, Huggy Bear is Doc's dad from the Red Hand Gang, right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, or his cool yeah. uncle, one of the two. Uh-huh. Yeah, that is documented somewhere, I think. Yeah. Um, he's got the info, etc. My, I, I have a problem with this with this scene, though. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a couple. Go on. I mean, if anybody is into ASMR... Thank this, you. Yep. The, yep. Yep. This you this have. this this is a treasure trove of intimate sound. <sighs> however, however, I I have misophonia. Yeah, misophonia. So yeah. so so I wanted to wanted to melt Bay City down. I'd have um yeah, I would have appreciated Fargas's performance a lot more if he hadn't mm-hmm. gone full method in the cinema and insisted on actually eating popcorn. Resulting and clacking. in his, his fucking chewing being louder than the dialogue. <laughs> yes, yes. Christ. <laughs> the, the, the clack Someone of who, his gob. I know. Someone who is um, doing the work silently is the little old lady in the row behind uh, Starsky. Like, the, uh-huh. the extra they've got. A little old lady that seems to have brought a thermos flask to what appears to be a porn cinema. Absolutely. And cannot yeah. mind drinking from it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Brilliant. Time's cracking on. The episode cracks on. Long story short, they crack the case. They can't see the wood for trees initially. They realise that this whole shooting of the other people, it, it's a smoke... It, it, that, that's the real crime. Yep, I love this. I absolutely love this. Using... This whole plot as a red herring to cover up an actual murder that is uh-huh. then, you know, not investigated. This has got an actual proper plot besides uh-huh. just introducing Starsky and Ken. Yeah. It's, it's Abs- amazing. It's dropping all of those familiar cop show beats, even for the time, and it still absolutely has its own stamp thanks to the that central cast in there. Yeah. Amazing. Starsky and Hutch are now after Henderson, and what follows is a wrap-up that I'd consider tense... Exciting, literally arse shattering as Hutch lands on the roof of his car. Textbook US <laughs> cop drama. Actually, on a point on a point of that, when he does land on his ass on the car roof, do you know that's why he's in a wheelchair now? David <laughs> it's actually true. He said that at a convention. Oh my god. He broke his ass on the first episode of Starsky Dutch. <laughs> I um yeah, I love the little details in this, like people outside of their own department not knowing which one is Starsky and which one's Ken because they always yeah, yeah. just work as one unit. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And yes, to go back to what you said earlier, I even respect the fact that they spend half the show in Ken's shit car so as not to wear out the presence of the Torino. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. He's prepared to stand on the bonnet of it and then, yeah, break his own ass on the roof because even he knows it's crap. <laughs> That's right. That's... um. Oh, what's that? Ken shit car. It reminds me of an old radio jingle or something. Yeah. Anyway. I love how the two bad guys, they get into that lift to escape from the seventh floor. We've just watched it going up with two middle-aged men keeping up on the stairs. We know that lift is slow as shit. Yes. Yes. 
<laughs> yes. So then, yeah, how do how do Starsky and Ken resolve all this 69 minutes into a 71-minute episode? They shoot the absolute fuck out of the hoodlums in an underground car park. You don't get that with a series with a talking car or some such. That's all I'm saying. It's a, it's a it's an absolutely brutal explosive ending. It is. It is. Yeah. Come on then, give me your pegs. Starsky and Hutch pilot episode. No surprises here. In terms of pilots, this is a show landing right on its wheels and in gear. Fucking superb television. Nine pegs. Damn right. Totally agree. Nine pegs. It's got everything you could want for a cop series in the 70s. Car chasers, clothes, guns, Americana, humour. Lapels. Lapels. Well, <laughs> denim slacks. Yeah, yes. Knitwear. Mustard cardigan. You've got a nine. Starsky Nuts, you've got a nine. You've got beautiful. a nine. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Really is. But before we even get settled, the question on everyone's lips inside of a bar that they're locked in and that they're writing down on pieces of paper given to them by Starsky and Hutch is mm-hmm. how many steps will it take you to tip-tap around a Ford Torino that's parked in a car park? Well, I'm going to turn my shoulder into the corner and surreptitiously write three. <gasps> Ken, Ken Hutch, is played here by David Soule, who appeared in John S. Baird's Filth, as did Jim Broadbent, who was in a 1984 episode of Crown Court, next to James Bree, who starred in the Family Tree episode of George and the Dragon with Peggy Mount. Six skeins of Silco went into that tray cloth. Nice. Aye, nice. thank you. Very good indeed. Now... Quickly, mm. while they're not looking, mm. how many can you do it? Well, I can fire my gun in two. Dave Ken Starsky is brought to the screen by Paul Michael Glazer, who also rocked up in 1971's Fiddler on the Roof alongside Harry Fielder, who showed his face briefly in Carol Reed's Oliver with. Why not? They're not expensive. Nice. Yeah. Oh, didn't take long at all. It really didn't. It really didn't. And uh, fortunately, it leaves us with enough time for another second question for our competition. Here is your Starsky and Hutch question. In one scene, Captain Doby is looking through a shoe catalogue as he talks to Starsky. Does he express a usual preference for A, a brogue, B, a sandal, or C, a rocker bottom? That is your question. Remember, just write them down and collect your answers and submit them in ten episodes' time. Oh, I know Marvelous. this one as well. He yes, well, you can't enter. He hasn't given me the answers, but I do know this. Anyway, that's that. I'm just off to buy a blue Thunderbird 2 model from Dinky Toys so that it can cause awkward and occasional violent conversation at dinner parties. So while I do, here's Blackout with your socials. Yes, thanks once again for being back here with us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyMountPod at gmail.com or we are PeggyMountPod on Twitter, Facebook and the Instagram. Five-star ratings are always welcome on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to us. Don't forget to go to PeggyMountPod.com to check out the show notes for this and all of our other episodes. It's as simple as that. It really is. And don't forget to download your competition answer sheet on PeggyMountPod.com as well. 
There you go. That was it for the first episode of the new series of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. We're back next week. See you then. Until then, keep pegging! The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from Michael Media which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments from television programs are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com. Peggy Mount Calamity Hour.